Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. No one ever went broke making a profit. You get an offer to sell something and they're $10,000 under your strike price, let's say. Well, are you going to make money? Is it something you would like to move forward with? Just sell it then if that's really what you want. Before we get into today's episode, I want to offer you a free service and a free gift. Yes, a free gift. You're a loyal best ever listener. You deserve free gifts. And it's from our best ever partner, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. So are you a landlord or investor who's self-managing? Well, if you're self-managing, is that the best way to scale your business? And are you fulfilled by self-managing or would you rather be doing other stuff with your time? Like, I don't know, scaling your business, scaling your portfolio, making more money, bringing more rentals, rental income coming in because you're acquiring more properties. If you want to scale, if you're not getting fulfilled by self-managing, then here comes a free service. Here comes a free gift. Linda Libatory, you know her, episode 714 I interviewed her about her best ever advice, talked to her about her company, which is the solution to your problem, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. They handle the phone calls, they handle the rent collections, they handle late payment reminders, they handle the lease violation notices, everything from the text messages, reminders, all the way to collecting the ACH payments. Linda's team will help you scale your business, whether you got 500 units or even a handful of units, go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. That's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. They're going to give you a free 30-minute goal strategy session. They'll give you free setup and the first 30 days free, mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Again, if you are self-managing and you're not fulfilled, by self-managing and you agree that there's a better way to scale your business, scale your investments, then go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Take Linda and her team up on their generous offer of giving you a trial and a strategy session to see if it's right for you. Mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff with us today. Josh Simon, how you doing, Josh? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well and excited to talk to you. We got a seasoned real estate professional with over 12 years of experience in leasing, development, and finance in six years, has developed over 1.6 million square feet 
and has over $90 million in construction planned in 2017. He's the founder and CEO of Simon CRE, and he is based in Scottsdale, Arizona. So with that being said, Josh, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, sure. So I've been, like you said, development 12 years, focusing on retail. This year, we'll do about 40 built-to-suit projects in about nine states, mostly for O'Reilly Auto Parts, Dollar General, PetSmart, Starbucks, Chipotle, several national users. And I think what gives us a unique experience is that we do stuff all over the country. Yeah, that is unique. How are you able to have exceptional teams across the country while being based in Arizona? Well, that's a good question. It's probably one of the hardest things we deal with. What we find is that you have to locate the good people in every market. And so we have 12 years experience. We find these guys over and over again, and we start using them. How do you find them? Referrals. Everything we do is networking, finding people, getting good referrals. So you get a referral. How do you qualify that team member? And just to bring it to life a little bit for some listeners who might not be as familiar with the process, who are the team members that you're interviewing? Anywhere from architects to contractors, anyone that has to do with building a ground-up project, attorneys if you have a zoning issue, civil engineers, surveyors. So let's just pick one of them. You can pick whichever one you want that you just mentioned. Even though you got referred to them, I'm sure you still qualify them through your own process in some fashion. What does that qualification process look like or even sound like when you're asking the questions? Well, it's tough because you don't meet a lot of the people when you're doing stuff all over the country. get to sit down face-to-face always. So a lot of it has to do with gut. I'll give you a good example, contractors. That's probably the biggest struggle. Have you ever remodeled your house? I haven't, but I've heard contractors are the biggest challenge out of any projects. I think the hardest thing, and several of your listeners are going to say, oh, I remodeled a house. I got swindled a few bucks, or I dealt with a bad sub that didn't do the right job, and contractors are probably the hardest thing that we deal with. If I look at my list of problems I have to deal with today, like (laughs) after the show, it's probably mostly around some kind of contractor issues. And when you do that many projects, it's just a natural that you're going to run into issues, and not so much the generals, but it could be subcontractors that didn't pay their suppliers. So I think if I have any kind of advice in dealing with subs and contractors and just vendors in general, call the referrals, do your homework, look at their financials, and then look at the projects that they've done. And when you go to do anything, you might get a price, you get, let's just say, three prices in anything in life. And just like when you're a handyman at your house or if you're doing a remodel on a rental, don't always go with the low guy because he's either missing something or he's going to change order you to death and you're going to end up paying way more. So kind of the way we look at it is we try not to always go with the low guy. We try to go with the guy that's the best fit for the job. And kind of going back to what you said, the vendors is, yeah, we look at everything for referrals, but we're also looking at everything. Are they the right fit? If you need foot surgery, you don't call a heart doctor. And so I think the same thing with architects and contractors. Have they built that product type before? We're not going to use a single-story retail contractor to go build a two-story office building. That just doesn't make sense. I get that. And just want to back up a little bit when you said call the referral, look at their financials, and look at the projects they've done. 
as far as looking at financials, can you elaborate on that? We're coming out of the Great Recession. So now contractors' financials have improved. Back in 2010 to 2013, looking at a three-year financial statement, the tax return in profit and loss and a balance sheet, they didn't always look too good. What we really want to see is how much revenue are they doing? Are they making money? Do they have cash? Meaning if you're going to do any size project, let's say they've got a million-dollar job, for example. They have 50 grand in cash. Well, what happens if one of those subcontractors needs money to show up at the job the next day? And we're processing a draw for the contractor, which is how you pay the contractors. You pay them through a draw process. Mm -hmm. And if that sub needs money and he's only got $50,000 in the bank, is your job going to proceed as fast as you want? Is it going to stay on schedule? And so I think it's a relationship, just like a bank looks at a borrower's financials, you want to look to the contractor's financials. Because when you're building anything, especially what we do, our construction cost is probably 80% of a total project budget. So that's one of your biggest decisions you need to make. And it can also, if you're not done right, you can end up with legal issues, with a delayed project, with loss of rent from the project being delayed. So that is a typical request to ask a contractor, in your case with these developments, to provide their financials? Oh, yeah. Most of them will. Some of them will ask to provide them directly to the bank. And then your lender is going to review them, and your lender is going to tell you if they approve them or not. But I'd say nine times out of ten, they happily provide you financials because it is a big decision. Just like if you're hiring an employer, sometimes you do a background check. You want to make sure that this contractor is who they say they are. And one other thing I'll add is when you're doing your due diligence is one simple step. Go on the Registrar of Contractors website for every state that they're licensed in. Do they have any outstanding complaints? Do they have past complaints? What's their history show online? What is that? You said it's specific to every state, but what is the website you go to? The Registrar of Contractors for every state has one. So as a contractor, in every state you have to be licensed. In every state, I think I have not run into one that doesn't, but they have an online database where you can look up that contractor. For example, in Arizona, they have a great website. You can pull up the contractor's name find their license, when does it expire, do they have all their stuff current, their bond, their insurance, and then also, are there any complaints that have been filed against the contractor, and you can actually pull up that information. Mm, Great stuff. What a useful tip. Let's take it back a little bit from a macro level. I mean, I'm on your website, I'm on projects, and I see... You all have done projects in California, Alice, Texas. I have no clue where Alice, Texas is. Laredo, and then Clifton, Arizona, another California, Kansas. How are you getting the business in these remote towns? Our business all derives from the retailer themselves or the tenant themselves. And so all those, Easy Pawn, Easy Corp is an actually publicly traded company all Dollar General publicly traded. So we build, all of our deals come from relationships. And like in anything in life, relationships are everything. And so our ability to build those relationships with different tenants at different companies is what has gotten us here. And I think that's one of the most important things. Obviously, you have to execute, but I think just getting yourself out there and making sure you're networking and telling the story of who you are is very, very important. 
if you can trace it back to a specific project or maybe a year or groups of projects, when was the tipping point for your company where you started getting a lot more business than you had previously? You hit a different level. That's a great question. I think as a millennial, we tend to want everything today or in the next five minutes. And when I started the company seven years ago, it was not as fast as I thought. I started, didn't have two nickels to rub together, just wanted to just do my own thing, figured I'd had nothing to lose. Our first three years in business, we might have done 12 developments. It took a year to get my first two done, almost to a year exactly. And then after three years, you started establishing a name in the market. You do 12, that's not a lot of deals, but all of a sudden, people see that you're real. Lenders start seeing that you pay back loans. Tenants see that you can complete a project and you're able to show them that you're not a overnight deal and you're going to be gone. I think one of the other things though is outside of real estate, when I started my own company, I also bought a tech company and we did hosted VoIP, which is business phone system. After three years side by side of both companies, I decided to sell the tech company to a publicly traded company and get out of it. The reason why, focus, focus, focus. And I think looking back, the biggest thing, and I don't think it's ever it was a mistake because I learned so much, but is have focus. Know what you're doing and just do that. So once we were able to get rid of the tech company and sell that and divest of all the kind of the time suck that that created, mm-hmm. we've now done 78 projects in three and a half more years. And so just that was the tipping point in spending my full energy, my full effort into just my real estate business and then saying no to everything else that did not have that laser focus. Is there a retail development project that you would say no to? Oh, yeah. A lot of them. Stuff that isn't directly in our purview. So what's... Uh, Buying them all. Okay, buying them all. I would say doing Power Center, which is where you have like a Target, a Kohl's, and 20 other retailers would be kind of outside of our laser-like focus. But I also star that with you can't just do your whole focus because you'll get blinded. You won't see anything else coming. So we've started to experiment, but in a Petri dish, we were doing our first medical project. We're doing a built-to-suit for a small primary care facility that has multiple locations in Arizona. So we will try something new, but it will be very targeted, very specific, because just like grandma's cookies, you always kind of tweak the recipe sometimes to add a little more flavor. And so you just have to be careful, be focused, but you have to know that in 10 years, especially the way technology and our economy is evolving, you have to be able to be ready to try some new things because what you're doing today is not what you're going to be doing in 10 years. The first three years, you had 12 development projects and the next four, 78. In the first three years, those 12, was any one of those 12 the one company or the retailer that then helped you expand to the 78 in four years? Yeah, we just had started working with Dollar General. And for those of you that don't know Dollar General, it's not a dollar store. It's like a Walgreens without a type of a pharmacy. And we were able to get in with those guys as they're starting a big expansion. How'd you get that relationship? 
That one was through networking. A contractor that we worked with knew one of their construction managers and gave us an introduction. I made a few phone calls. Obviously, it took some persistence on my part. Got introduced to the local regional real estate manager, and we hit it off, and he gave me an opportunity, and I went out and uncovered a site, got it under contract to buy, got the deal approved by the tenant, and built it in record time because I put every ounce of energy into that project, knowing that there could be a huge relationship down the road. How many Dollar Generals have you built since then? We've probably done over 30, I would guess, at this point. I don't have an exact figure. Yeah. Are they, in terms of volume, the highest? Yeah, I would say they are one of our biggest customers for sure. What type of differences do you have to account for when you build for a Dollar General versus maybe an Easy Pawn? Because conceptually, I envision them being pretty similar, but are there anything that you want to point out that, well, there's something that's different there? From the develop, from site selection side, development, or... Let's do all three. Why not? From site selection, every retailer has their own or every tenant has their own perfect site mix, right? For like a pawn store, it has to be the right zoning. There has to be the right demographic. Zoning is a huge deal to be able to put a pawn store and be able to get the proper licensing. On the Dollar General side, it's important for them to be convenient to their customer base. I think 70% of Dollar Generals are in towns of less than 20,000 people. They have good access. Are they well visible from the road? Where is their competition? How's their competition doing? Is that another strong store? Can we outposition their competition by going a half mile to the east where more traffic is? On the development side, things are way different. Most of the pawn stores that we did were existing building redevelopments, which get very complicated because you start pulling back the walls, pulling off the drywall. You have asbestos back there. Is there a column you might not have accounted for in the plans? So there's a lot of things versus new construction, which often takes longer because you have to get entitlements and site plan approval, whereas when you're using an existing building and maybe remodeling it or expanding it, it's a lot easier to get through the permitting process. So we're a huge proponent of redevelopments because typically they don't have to go through as much of the public purview, whereas new construction, there's notices sent out, there's a lot more involvement of the public. Mm-hmm. And then on the construction side, I think I talked a little bit about it. When you're doing ground, your biggest challenge for ground up, once you pour the slab for the building, you pretty much are going to be smooth sailing for the rest of the building. The biggest challenge you run into with ground up is before the slab, off-site utilities, dirt conditions. You start digging. We were building a project in downtown St. Louis, and we came across three underground storage tanks. Those were not expected, right? And that <laughs> runs up the cost. So those are things that you take as risk when you're developing that you have to think about. But once we pour the slab, we know, okay, most of those things have been accounted for. And then on the redevelopment side, like I spoke about, you start pulling drywall off and you're like, oh, there's a column there. Or the trusses aren't properly supporting the roof, but you couldn't see it because there was a hard lid ceiling that you couldn't tear down because the tenant is still operating in that building when you're doing the redevelopment. Will you elaborate on the underground 
storage tanks, why that's a problem, what do you do to remedy it, and how much does it cost typically? Underground, you have utilities. So connecting to the sewer, connecting to water, connecting electric. I'll give you a perfect example. We're finishing a project right now where we were potholing. So you look for the sewer connection by potholing into the ground to kind of find the contractor looks for the sewer line. Well, the city didn't know exactly where the sewer line is located against the property. Well, contractor can't find it. So now we have to go get an easement from our neighbor. So now there's costs and timing issues involved with that, which can probably will cost us an extra fifteen or $20,000 because of that. Another thing with power is you submit. So power companies, a lot of times they won't have the design done when you start construction of how you're going to hook up to their system. And then now all of a sudden they'll give you their fees down the road of what that cost will entail. And a lot of times they come back asking for extra work. Undergrounding power lines is a big new thing. If you look at a lot of new developments, there's no more overhead power. It's all underground. So those are costs that you can't really account for. And then dirt conditions. I think we talked about finding tanks in the ground, but also just the quality of the soil under the building. So when you build a building on top of soil, I think, I don't know if you read the news, but the San Francisco, they've got that Millennium Tower that's sinking and all yeah. the residences yeah. are suing. Well, that's because the soil condition underneath, they didn't properly build a foundation. And so that's an extreme example. But this stuff does happen. We built a building in the Midwest last year, and we had to build about a 40-foot retaining wall to support part of the parking lot. Well, there was a ton of rain, and there was a bunch of settlement of the soil. And we had backfilled this 40-foot retaining wall with a lot of soil. And then all of a sudden, the parking lot, not just a small section of it, but started a crack, and the contractor had to go out, tear out a part of the parking lot, recompact the soil, and repave. Luckily, because we were not liable for that, but that was still a time, and we still had to put effort into fixing that. And why weren't you liable for that? That's where you get lots of technicalities. So the geotechnical report didn't properly account for the settlement, and then the contractor also didn't get a compaction test every time you do any kind of compactions, you have a third-party group that comes out. Usually the cities require it or the governmental approving agency, city, county. But a lot of times we always require it. And so every time they put down more dirt and compact it, a third-party company comes out and tests that compaction to make sure it's per spec. Well, they missed a couple tests on their what we call list. So every, I think, 10 feet going up the 40 feet. I don't think you do based on the group of clients that you have, but I want to ask you the question anyway. Do you retain any sort of equity ownership in any of these developments? On the real estate itself? Yeah. Yes, we do. A lot of them we do. So we buy the dirt, we build the building, and the tenant leases it back from us on a long-term lease. Oh, okay. Cool. That's great. Yeah, and then a lot of times what we do is then they're almost like commodities now. We sell a lot of them as a triple net investment where people looking to have cash flow, especially in their 
retirement years, and a lot of these are on the single tenants, like the Dollar Generals, for example, there's really no maintenance for the landlord. Mm -hmm. And so what we call that is mailbox money, where a lot of these baby boomers, they own triplexes or duplexes in Southern California. They're tired of changing light bulbs. So they'll sell their duplex and do a 1031 exchange Mm -hmm. and go buy something that has way less maintenance. What percentage do you sell and what percentage do you keep in your company's portfolio? It really depends. This year, we're definitely a net seller versus a net holder just because of the market and just because of how fast we've grown. We've got to kind of feed the machine. So we sell a lot of stuff. And right now, it's still a very good time to be a seller. Tenure treasury is still very low. There's still overall a good feeling about the economy. And the retailers we develop for are still very much in high demand. Hmm. That's a fascinating business model. Josh, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Don't be greedy. And no one ever went broke making a profit. (laughs) How do you apply that in your current business? If you get an offer to buy something or you get an offer to lease or maybe there's one sticking point in the deal that you're like, I'm not going to do that. I always like to say, don't be greedy with anything. Is it really worth losing the deal over? And then no one ever went broke making a profit. You get an offer to sell something and they're $10,000 under your strike price, let's say. Well, are you going to make money? Is it something you would like to move forward with? Just sell it then, if that's really what you want. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. All right. Let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Are you an investor who self-manages, talks to your residents, collects checks, and handles all the day-to-day tasks? Well, there's a better way, best ever listener, and guess what? That better way is Secure Pay One. Secure Pay One, the landlord helper, will have conversations over the phone with your residents whenever there's an issue, and the residents can pay you directly. So schedule your free trial and 30-minute session today at mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. That's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com. Josh, what's the best ever book you've read? I would say I just read Talent is Overrated, but my other favorite is Team of Teams by General McChrystal. Best ever deal you've done? I bought a shopping center in Michigan that was a Target, a Theater, a Ruby Tuesday and Shops from a lender and reworked all the leases and were able to split off all the parcels for the best return I've ever done. Best ever way you like to give back? I educate our future generations. We have a huge internship program. Right now we've got five students that are in college to teach them about real estate, and they work 20 to 30 hours every week. What's a mistake you've made on a deal that you can think of? I think it goes back to what we talked to using the not the right contractor or vendor for a project. I've spent millions of dollars that I shouldn't have. And where can the best ever listeners get in touch with you, Josh? email or through our website, you can contact us, joshua at simoncre.com. And I encourage the best ever listeners, you go check out his website, simoncre.com. 
it's got all the projects that his team's worked on. It's, it's a fun website, too. It's just really well organized. It's a nice and polished website. It just looks really good. Josh, I knew it was going to be an educational interview and a lot of fun. I love talking about things that aren't typically discussed on the show. And, and retail development certainly is one of them. How you talked about the differences between a pawn shop development and a Dollar General development from site selection, from development, and from the construction site and how you compared and contrasted that, as well as the tipping point for your business. The first three years, 12 developments, three years. The next four years, 78 developments. And getting that track record and also the relationship that you got through a contractor who worked with you and knew the construction manager and so on and so forth ended up getting the relationship with Dollar General and one of your largest clients. So thanks so much for being on the show. Also, the mantra of don't be greedy and nobody ever went broke making a profit. Thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com.